Welcome to Inside the Admissions Office, your one-stop shop for expert advice on the smart way to get in. My name is Ellen, and in each episode, I'll bring you an interview with a former admissions officer, a graduate of a top college, or an admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office and will be full of behind-the-scenes knowledge, first-hand experiences, and application tips to help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation at the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Columbia MFA graduate, Ingenious Prep graduate coach, and writing professor at the University of New Haven, Poto Paramita. Poto and I will discuss some major changes in the world of college admissions for the 2022 to 23 application cycle, including changes in test optional policies and quotas at top schools like the UCs. Hi, Poto. How are you today? Hi, Ellen. I'm good. How are you? Just give me like a quick summary of your background and maybe for new listeners or if you've had any changes since you were last on. I went to Wolsey College for my undergrad. I graduated with a double major in English and Creative Writing and Women's and Gender Studies. And after graduation, I joined Ingenious Prep as the digital content specialist where I wrote over 400 blogs on the admissions process. I'm also a graduate coach here, which means that I help our students apply to their top choice colleges and help them with essays and things like that. A couple of years ago, I started at Columbia for my MFA in creative nonfiction, and I finished this past May. And I have recently started, as you mentioned, as a writing professor at the University of New Haven. So really just like all about the college scene has taken over my last few years. Yeah. The first major change that we'll be discussing is that many popular schools in Texas, Mm -hmm. originally you would apply through them through the Apply Texas application online, but many of these schools have now joined the Common App. So just tell us more about that, like what has motivated this change, and then is there a benefit to still using Apply Texas versus using the Common App to apply to these schools? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the motivation behind this change is that the Common App is more centralized. It has a thousand colleges. A lot of people don't want to open, you know, multiple accounts on multiple websites. So the Texas colleges probably thought it would be easier for their, you know, potential applicants to come in through an application system that they were already using. They wanted to attract wider number of students, you know, giving them a chance to use their Common App personal statement for their Texas application. In terms of benefits, I would say there are still some advantages to using the Apply Texas over the Common App. You know, if they're only applying to multiple colleges in Texas, that's still fine to use Apply Texas and they'll only have to write one of the three Apply Texas prompts, which actually have a word limit like suggestion of 1200 to 1500 rather than 650. So you can write a longer essay and you are able to submit only 10 extracurriculars for the Common App. But in the in Apply Texas, you split the extracurriculars that you have into like community service, allowing up to, you know, describing eight community service activities. It also has eight slots to enter honors, awards, talents, which is more than the Common App Honors section offers as well. Do you think we might see a similar change in the future with the UCs of them migrating to the Common App? 
oh, the UCs are so independent. I actually don't. I think MIT and UCs will always continue to use their own application. I think Georgetown might be a surprise because Georgetown has very slowly been integrating more newer technologies as in they stopped sending their acceptance letters by mail very recently. So they're making a very slow process of coming into technology. So maybe they'll join the Common App someday, but I don't see the UCs in particular, especially with how they're becoming test blind and making all of these issues on their own and how they have this very specific essay requirement that they would join the common up very soon in the future. Speaking of California, my alma mater USC, they've recently added an early action option. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is the motivation for this? What kind of students do you think are the best fit for this early action option at USC? Yeah, I'm sure, as you know, a lot of students are excited about USC. It offers so many different types of majors and schools, especially students who are interested in journalism and theater and dance like you, Ellen. So in order to accommodate for all of these students who are so enthusiastic, I'm sure that's why they introduced this new policy. So I would say the best fit for this new option would be students who are excited about USC and they can have their application ready by November 1st. And applying early shows that you are committed to the school, you're excited to the school, and if it's your number one choice, this can give you an advantage. Now, the policies for like which school students can apply to ED, EA at the same time yeah. can get really complicated and confusing. And we have a lot of questions about this. Yeah. So if a student's applying EA to USC, can they apply EA elsewhere? And could they apply ED elsewhere? Right. Yeah, this was something that I was confused about. Our readers were confused about. We had to do a lot of research to get to the bottom of this. But the consensus is that you can apply early decision to any other school. So you can apply binding to Brown or Columbia, for example, and you can still apply regular early action to any large public institution. However, you can't apply restrictive early action or single choice early action to a private school like Harvard or Yale. These do not allow you to EA to private institutions in return. So again, you can ED, you can EA Michigan, for example, and still EA USC, but you cannot REA Harvard, Yale, or Stanford and still EA USC. If students have questions, if they're still confused, can they ask the admissions office about this? Or is this kind of like a low-key thing where people are like, using a loophole to do these extra applications early? No, absolutely. I think they can ask either the admissions officers at USC, who I'm sure are getting a lot of questions about this, or they can clarify with the school like Yale and figure out what they are allowed and not allowed to do. I would say the USC admissions office have always been very helpful. I've reached out to them before about other questions of them very promptly replied to me. So I, I think you can go ahead and do that. And because it is the first year, I'm sure they know that we will have questions. It's all the sunshine in LA. It makes people very nice. Yeah. It's like a theory. People in Southern California are very nice. Oh. Another change is that top schools, including NYU, Columbia, UPenn, they've made changes to their supplemental essays. For NYU, I think they got rid of their like classic why NYU yeah. essay and replaced it with one about identity. That's optional. So what motivated these changes for mm -hmm. schools like NYU where the new supplemental essay is optional? Do you think that they should respond? Yeah. Any question that's optional and you are able to answer it, I think you should. I think the one case in which you shouldn't answer an optional question would be if something asked, maybe if you're part of the LGBTQ community and do you wish to elaborate on that, maybe don't answer that kind of optional question. But for something such as NYU, which is such a competitive school and you will be using any chance you get to differentiate yourself from others, absolutely write the supplemental question, which is 
focused on identity, on diversity, how you can contribute to a community, what is an interest of yours. So something I would say is that I would say that NYU probably wanted to spice things up a little because Yes, it was such a tradition and they have broken that, but I think perhaps they are now aware of how in demand they are. Everybody wants NYU. You know, rankings don't really matter. People love NYU. So just like any other school, they're trying to see fit. So by answering that question, you can help them see how you'll belong there. And then with Columbia, they now have a 35-word essay about what brings you joy and Penn wants you to write a short thank you note to someone you haven't thanked yet. So these kind of questions want to see students express more positivity, I would say. I think especially given that high school seniors now have spent so much time of the past couple of years in a pandemic at home surrounded, you know, without their friends. So this is a chance to really express gratitude or focus on things that bring you joy so that students can, you know, show themselves in a more positive light. And just to clarify your example, do you mean with like the LGBTQ question, do you mean if the student isn't part of that community, they shouldn't respond? Right, right. That is not like an ally prompt at all. So they're usually like, if you're part of the LGBTQ community, you can expand on your identity as such. So those optional questions are truly optional, but something like NYU supplemental essay is not optional, really. Right. And we're going to discuss this more later, but right now the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, and I think as of October, so about when this episode is coming out, is going to hear first arguments for a court case mm-hmm. concerning affirmative action and race-conscious admissions at Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill. And there is speculation that that case might go against them. Mm-hmm. So I know like a big question right now in college admissions is like the future of race and college admissions. And, you know, these universities still have a commitment to bringing in diverse classes but they might need like new strategies to do that. Do you think in the future, we might see more changes like this NYU supplemental essay where they're using other aspects of the application to help them understand how they can bring in a more diverse class? Absolutely. So, you know, a decision like that might eliminate questions about race specifically from the profile side of the Common App. So instead, essays might be more focused towards diversity. For example, in law school applications, we see an optional diversity statement where students can elaborate on that. And, you know, if they don't feel like they are a minority in a racial or ethnic background way, they can always talk about a hobby that's unique that makes them different. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that you have to answer a diversity question with your demographic background. There are a lot of ways to kind of answer answer these questions. And moving back to the West Coast, the UCs, University of California Consortium, Consortium, Consortium? Consortium, yeah. Consortium. That one's a little too hard for me. They didn't teach us that at USC. The UCs are reducing spots, which isn't a huge surprise to anyone. There's been recent news articles as of like September 2022 about like serious housing. Oh, there's always articles about serious housing crises, but it's been especially bad recently in places like UC Berkeley. So can you talk about like what in addition to that has motivated changes for the UCs to reduce spots? And yeah, then how is this going to affect out of state and international students? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, the housing situation, I would I would imagine the fires are contributing to a you know a crisis in resource resources as well. I would also say that from an admissions perspective, probably they want to make more space for California re- residents. So one of the purposes for any large public school, such as the University of California, is to prioritize the in-state candidates. And therefore, they often get tuition and auto admission advantages at a lot of these schools. But the UCs have become, you know, extremely in in demand from outside California in the last decade, because obviously, they are very good schools, they offer a lot of really interesting majors, US, um, UC Berkeley and UCLA are very famous, whether for sports, for, you know, their academic offerings. And I know a lot of students, a lot of my international students, for example, are very fascinated by the UCs and 
find themselves looking at them. So I would think that they just kind of decided to adjust accordingly because their priority has been in a like a fundamental basis to take consideration of California residents first. And in terms of how this might affect out-of-state and international students, I think both categories of students who do not live in California right now and don't count as California residents will have a significantly lower chance of being admitted to the UCs, especially the very competitive one. Despite reduced spots, though, I think UCs test blind policy will mean that the number of applications will continue to rise. And we actually saw last year that the UCs were very competitive. Right. So do you think students should consider maybe applying to some private California colleges? Because if you're applying out of state to a UC or an international student anyway, you're not qualifying for in-state tuition. So maybe students diversifying their school list. Yeah, I mean, depends on the circumstance. California does have a lot of great schools. You know, there's like Pomona, there's the Claremont Colleges, there is USC. So a lot of different options if California is the reason that you're applying to the UCs. I would also say that a lot of students have in the past used non-UC Berkeley and UCLA UC schools as safeties, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. There's just no such things as targets and safeties. For example, students who are admitted to who are not admitted actually to use the Santa Barbara, San Diego, Irvine, and Davis last year would might have gotten in in the past and vice versa. Like students that we've seen get into these in the years past may not have gotten in last year because they were just so, so competitive because of how in demand the UCs are. And they really do seem focused on yield and they seem to have some early movements happening in the wait list. Like last March, you know, very soon after the decisions came out, UC Irvine saw movements in their wait list already. So they are paying a lot of attention to who is likely to attend when they get in. So I would say that if you are strategizing in terms of which UCs to apply to, only apply to UCs that you know that you will attend if you get it. So make sure you are considerate of that because I think they can tell when someone's trying to use them as a safety. It'll be interesting to see how the UCs respond to this demand over time. I just saw an article about UCLA purchased a bunch of land in Rancho Palos Verdes, mm-hmm. which is quite far from the UCLA campus in Westwood, especially like in LA traffic and traffic it could easily take like an hour to get there. So it'll be interesting to see like what their vision is for like satellite campuses mm. to respond to demand, but then also, you know, how will that affect the student experience? Totally. So another change is that most schools, this isn't a change, this is kind of like a continuation that a lot of schools are continuing, as you said, these test optional policies. Do you have any idea how long these policies, we can expect them to stay? A lot of schools have said like, oh, like we're through 2026 or 2027. Yeah. Do you think that date will just keep being pushed back? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the list, so many schools have already talked about going permanently test optional or test test blind, such as the Cal State School, Cornell's Agriculture School, Reed, the UCs, University of San Diego, University of Washington, they've just dropped this for the foreseeable future. And then, you know, we have schools like Harvard and Johns Hopkins and Northeastern who have said that they are going to be test optional until 2026, which is a long time. So I think other schools will follow the lead and they are very influential schools. You know, if Harvard's doing something, maybe people will pay more attention to it and think like, oh, this might be something worth exploring. And so if students continue to opt for this route and they see that there is success and they are able to accept and support a lot more deserving students because they're not submitting their SAT or ACT score, I think they will continue implementing this even without COVID affecting test dates. And you've interviewed some of our former admissions officers about what they focus on now that they're not looking at test scores. Mm -hmm. Do you just want to highlight some of those factors? Yeah, absolutely. So SAT 
essentially, you know, looks at how you perform academically and test taking settings in subjects such as critical reading and mathematics, right? So in lieu of that, they will be looking at your AP scores, if you've taken any college level classes, how you've performed in those, your GPA, of course, the rigor of your school course load, any academic focused extracurriculars, as well as what your teachers have said in the letters of recommendation. Essentially, they're trying to gauge if you will thrive in their, you know, tough academics, college level settings. And if your application can prove that you are able to do that without an SAT score, I think you are in for you know, a good luck in that admissions process. Uh, on the other hand, some schools have actually dropped test optional policies. Mm -hmm. The most notable example is MIT. Do you want to talk about what do you think motivated this change and then what sort of schools are following MIT's example or they might mm -hmm. follow MIT's example in the future? Yeah. I mean, MIT has the same case as the UCs that, you know, they're so in demand that they want to find ways to eliminate some students. So I would say that MIT is still obviously because it is the Institute of Technology so scientifically inclined. They just need to know that students can handle the heavy levels of math and engineering that the school will have to have them deal with. So in order to do that, they would still need to see their, their math scores or they would still need to see that they can handle heavy levels of reading and writing. And so I would say that's why MIT has decided to bring back test regulations. And another change is that the Common App has updated their personal descriptors so that students can describe themselves in a way that better fits with their identity, especially mm -hmm. as it relates to gender yeah. presentation. How would you say just in general students should explore and express their identity in their applications, especially if they come from an identity that is maybe more marginalized? Yeah, absolutely. I would say share whatever you are comfortable with. You know, you don't have to out yourself if you're not ready, if your family's not aware of it. Don't do anything that puts you in a position of discomfort or danger. Schools just want to be able to support different gender identities and sexualities. So if you feel okay doing so, do it. Of course, like I was saying, you know, you don't have to do anything if you don't fall in this community. Don't lie and say you are part of this LGBTQ community. If you are not, that's just a big red flag. Like these diversity points are not worth it. It would just make you look very bad if it comes out later that you were lying in your application. It's interesting that you mentioned how uh, the wildfires might uh, affect California universities, the UCs, like the number of students they let in. I remember wildfire season kind of coincides with finals. So I remember one year UCLA having to cancel their finals because the wildfires were really bad just in Bel Air on the hills above the campus, mm -hmm. like you know, ash like raining down on the students. So one topic that's really interesting to me is how climate change and areas that are more susceptible to the effects of climate change might affect these universities. I mean, you have somewhere like Tulane that's constantly getting hit by hurricanes, somewhere right. like College of Charleston, as we're recording this, Hurricane Ian just hit Florida. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that about how colleges might pivot if they're like in a location that's very susceptible to these weather events? Yeah, I think depending on how they fared when they went online for the pandemic, colleges might switch to being more remote or offering a greater number of remote classes for students who might not feel comfortable making it to these areas. Another thing that did occur to me is that, you know, students themselves are very passionate about the climate and about taking action. And so I think we could see some, you know, activism from students themselves and trying to like help their local college communities, as well as trying to help colleges, you know, act, they can act 
the student liaisons to support the student body in advocating for themselves. You know, I can't necessarily predict what will happen, but I, I can see, I can see schools making some changes because I can already see, you know, even at the University of New Haven where I teach, they have a bunch of classes that are either remote or asynchronous because everyone's just on a different schedule or people or teachers might not be able to come and teach in the same way. So I think we can see online adaptations a lot more in the future. Right. As you said, politics and social issues are very important to Gen Z this generation. I think it'll also be interesting to see over the next years how like local and state politics affect the school students apply to. And I then know a lot of students, especially female students or students born female mm-hmm. have expressed, you know, concerns about applying to colleges or applying to, is, applying to colleges in certain states due to the Roe v. Wade being overturned. Right. Mm-hmm. So that would just be another interesting thing to see probably yeah. over the next five to 10 years. But my next question, a little personal. Columbia. So it's okay. It's okay to have a scandal. I came from USC. We have a lot of scandals. It's all right. Columbia was number two on the US News and World Report, and they rose to number 18 because a report, a math professor at Columbia came out and said, like, yeah, I think Columbia like kind of made up some of these numbers. So overall, this is kind of like undermined the legitimacy of these rankings because the essential question is like, how can a university you know, change positions that quickly? Like, do these rankings yeah. mean any? So what would you say about that question of legitimacy? And as well, do you think this will affect Columbia's prestige, of especially students? Do you think this will affect their decision to apply there, to choose them as yeah. an ED choice? Yeah, totally. Okay, let me start with the prestige question first. I think, I don't think it's likely to affect anything much in terms of whether Columbia can still expect a high number of applications. I think it is still extremely prestigious. It has that history. It has that alumni list. And it is, of course, still part of the Ivy League. And we know everyone loves that Ivy League brand name, though, you know, debatable why. If anything, I feel like more students might apply to it thinking it might be less competitive because it's number 18. Sometimes students take these things so at face value that they think that, oh, Columbia is no longer number two. They must become, you know, magically more or less selective, which is not true. Columbia actually started withholding their acceptance rate. And I think one of the reasons college do that, Princeton and Sanford do that too, is because they don't want students to kind of get stressed out and stop applying to their school because they're just too selective. So I don't think we'll see any, you know, inflections in it's not the right word. I don't think we'll see any difference in the change in terms of how many students apply there. I think we'll still continue to see Columbia be very competitive. And in terms of legitimacy of the rankings, I think a true mix, because, you know, it turns out that the U.S. News were basing off their rankings of incorrect data and just taking into value whatever Columbia was saying. And so somewhat, yes. But I don't know that people will care in the short run. I think at the same time, safety schools mean nothing anymore, right? So like we have schools ranked 50 or whatever, extremely, extremely selective now. Schools that are comparatively lower than the Ivy, such as BU and Northwestern, Northeastern have similar, if not lower acceptances as top 20 schools. So truly just like schools have stopped caring about their ranking. They have received more applications. They're becoming more selective. All this is doing is just putting numbers that are kind of arbitrary next to colleges because everything is just so selective right now. But I think parents, especially that we see at Ingenious, very much care about rankings. So I don't think that will change immediately. But in reality, I think the landscape is changing very much and not in a way that makes top schools look very positive. 
Returning to the Supreme Court case with UNC Chapel Hill and Harvard, our chief education officer was just at the National Association for College Counseling Conference. And this was a topic of one of the panels. I think her summary was that regardless of how the decision pans out, and I don't think we can expect a verdict until next year, but regardless how the decision pans out, that colleges um, are affirming their commitment to diversity. Right. Do you have anything else to add about this case, how it might change admissions in the short yeah. term, long term? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, like you said, in October, it's going to start. The high court is actually due on Halloween to start hearing oral arguments. So I, I like you said, we probably won't start hearing anything until like at least early next year, but it would probably take a while. I think what I've seen in the news is that legal experts foresee that given the Supreme Court's you know conservative majority, it will almost certainly and race conscious admissions. In doing so, they would be siding with the groups that are suing Harvard and UNC over their enrollment policies. And so I think, like we were saying, that essays are going to be more important or geared towards trying to figure out students who need more help. I think it's not just in terms of race. I think race is often correlative to class, which might see first-generation students struggling to find a place in colleges. But when schools such as, you know, Princeton and Harvard and Columbia talk about their enrollment and the students that they've accepted, they're very proud in mentioning the diversity in the classes and how many first-generation students are admitted and things like that. So I think they will continue even if the court doesn't allow them to find ways to take this on. Yeah, that might be like another kind of like offhand way that they approach this issue in the future is looking at labels like, are you a first-generation college student? Although yeah. of course there is like a lack of clarity in those labels. I read a mm -hmm. specific article about like a student at UPenn and she had like come from like a very privileged family, but it was like an abusive family. So she ended up in foster care and she checked that she was first gen because oh. she met like the first gen student society's definition, but then she didn't meet UPenn's right. definition. And so they were like, you know, she was like, I think she was like a like a fellow at Oxford or something. She was like very successful, but then UPenn was like taking back her degree. Mm -hmm. And there was just all these issues because yeah. they hadn't clearly defined what these terms mean. Right. Often they will look at what students have answered for that question about their parents' highest level of education. But obviously in a case like that, that's hard to determine if the student doesn't know who their parents are or where their parents went to school. And are there any other admissions trends that you want to highlight? that we might see as a result of these changes we've discussed today? I think we can expect the number of college applications to continue to increase just like it has for the past few cycles. A lot more students will apply without an SAT or ACG score from what I can tell. My students are definitely applying test optional. And as a result, I think AP exams and essays will play a more significant role in terms of admission decision. And are there any other changes that you expect in the future or changes that you would like to see in the future in the world of college yeah, admissions? Totally. I mean, I think in terms of what we expect to see, we are expecting very high competition. As you know, and as we've heard on a previous episode of the podcast, ingenious prep students had so much greater success in the early round than the regular round, you know, twice as likely to get into Brown. 90% of UChicago's class was admitted from the ED one and two round. So things like that will continue. I think colleges are very invested in knowing who will 
accept the position once they get in. And again, because this kind of thing contributes to the US news ranking, I'm sure everyone's more vigilant now about this kind of stuff. So I think early decision will continue to have a high importance. Changes I'd like to see, I would think I would like to see more video portfolios. So Chicago and Brown, instead of interviewing their students, allow them to upload, I think, a one minute video where they talk about themselves. And it's just like a way to highlight students who might not be as strong in writing or, you know, just might be strong in writing anyway, but very charismatic as a person or give them a chance to explore a side of them that's more creative or show their creativity in a different way. So I want schools to you know, incorporate this more. And then I think I would like to see schools going test blind or test optional in terms of making sure the optional is really optional because some schools say it's optional, but then they end up taking a, more students who are submitting their scores. So I, I would like to see test blind become more of a thing. I just want students to feel supported. I know everyone is really anxious and it's so hard to predict what works anymore. So I just want things that give students more chance to have fun with these applications. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to see test blind really being solidified permanently and then also kind of like deep prioritization of rankings. I think rankings can be yeah. helpful if they're like major specific rankings or they're rankings based on like like individual factors like location, graduation right. rate. But I just think like the overall rankings are there's too many complicated factors for them to really tell you like what's the number one college in America and then students are just you know, they're ending up at the wrong schools because of prestige, yeah, and themselves yeah, in a lot yeah. of debt because of a brand name. We'd just like to move away from that eventually. Do you have any other words of wisdom to share? I know you and your students are really like grinding right now in season. So I think this episode will come out like mid to late October. So for students who are about to submit their early applications, any words of advice? Yeah. Sure. You know, it is a tough time. I don't personally envy students who are applying this year, but don't freak out. Take it one step at a time. It'll be okay. Take a deep breath. Make sure you're still doing some fun things and not just grinding away at your applications in senior year. Take the time to, you know, watch a movie, hang out with your friends. And and like Ellen was saying, be intentional about your school list. Don't grow, go off just brand names and rankings and where your friends are going. Take the time to research and ask yourself if you'd really be happy at a school. You might have the stats and you could end up rejected from a top school because it's not the one for you, like they can tell. So make sure they can really help you grow and reach your goals and that you can speak about how you can contribute to their campus in ways that are meaningful to both you and the college. So make that decision very intentionally and chances are you will get into, you know, at least more than one of your top schools. Thank you so much for joining us today, Poto. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight into changes for the 2022 to 23 college application cycle. For more information, check out our blog linked in the episode description. If you have any questions or would like to request a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow and send us a message on social media with the hashtag InsideAdmissions. That's all for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.